Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Unpacking the Word. I'm uh, Barrett Holmes Pittner, and I'm here, as always, with uh, with Luna. Hey, Luna. Hey, how's it going, Barrett? I'm I'm great, Luna. Um, uh, well, I will say, I feel great, but I my kid may have given me a cold, so if I sound a little funny, that's probably why. Um, but apart from that, I feel good. Uh, so what what uh, what do you want to talk about today? Today, I. feel figured we could kind of use a break from the news (laughs) from this 24-7 news cycle and actually backpedal a little bit to when we first, yeah, when we both first kind of figured out that language is important (laughs) and that language really matters. So I'm really curious for you, Barrett. If you could take us back to a past Barrett (laughs) or in the past, when did you first kind of conceptualize language as a philosophy and how you started to cultivate like a language philosophy? It's a great question. So there's a lot of layers to this, I'd say, because like in middle school and high school, I was not interested in English as a subject at all. Like I was good at math and I liked sports and social studies, but I was anything but an English person. So the idea, if you told me in high school that frankly, that I'd be a writer or a writer focusing on language, I don't think I would have believed you. Um, uh, But one thing I do remember around that time and this is like high school, maybe college, is I remember hearing about a person. I don't even remember what the person was. It was probably like someone in one of my textbooks. And there was a word in it that I didn't know. And I was like, where'd this word come from? And they told me that the person just like made it. And I was like, you can do that. This guy just made a word. And now I'm reading (laughs) this word he invented. And this is important now. He just made it out of thin air. So I, th- I definitely remember in high school or like really early in college having the idea that you could make a word, which s- I think that just lingered in the back of my brain for a real long time. It didn't like manifest until later in life when like the need to make words became really apparent. And so, so that was probably like the initial interest that remained like latent for a long time. And then when I moved to DC and I became a journalist, I started writing my ideas. Well, not when I became a journalist, but when I became like an opinion writer and I was tasked with writing my own ideas. Because one thing that's funny is like everyone has ideas and everyone thinks that they're really great, but until you have to write about them, one idea can have like a really long shelf life. You know, like if you have an idea that's really cool, you can say that to many different people over like an extended period of time and they'll keep on thinking it's a cool idea and a new idea. But once you publish that idea, the publication doesn't want you to write that same idea the next week. You know, like you then kind of have to go in overdrive and kind of get more precise and clearer about what you think because your ideas for their like inventiveness 
have a a shorter shelf life unless they're really, really good. You know, (laughs) you know, like it has to be a real groundbreaking idea for them to want to hear you talk about it over and over and over again, you know? Right. And so, um, I started thinking about my ideas a lot more once I became an opinion writer, uh, contributing writer. And one thing I noticed is when I wrote my stories, I had a different perspective on race relations in America than a lot of people did. And it wasn't like clear to me until I had to like refine the idea so that I could write about it over and over and over again without people getting bored, that it became really clear that there was something unique here. And that uniqueness was that I was talking about culture and everybody else wanted to talk about race. Mm-hmm. But still here's, do. Still do. St- exactly. Yeah. Still do. But the, the, the tension was that only the language for talking about it through a racial lens existed. Mm. So it became really hard for me to articulate how I saw things in a way that people could understand or like not get upset about it. So right. like, like an interesting article and this still, I think got people annoyed was a uh, uh, Rachel Dolezal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rachel Dolezal, I found this just to be fascinating because for the longest time, white people, when they immigrated to America, did, or Europeans, when they immigrated to America, would do anything and everything to appear as like an Anglo-Saxon white person. You know, they're yeah. changing their names. They're, you know, yeah. they're trying to get rid of their accents. You know, you know, if, mm-hmm. if, if you're, if your name, say you're Polish and it's Peter, but it's spelled like, you know, Potter, like you come to America and you're, you're spelling that P-E-T-E-R, all that kind of stuff. And now there's a woman who's from the, ancestry is from the Czech Republic and she's doing everything conceivable to live as a black person. Like, like she went to an HBCU, she worked at the NAACP, she's raising two black boys, she like studied African you know history and she like did hair braiding I was like this is I've never seen a white person put this much effort to be black this is fascinating not sure if it's good or bad but like I'm I'm really intrigued and that perspective in many ways is like a cultural perspective where like I wasn't viewing it in like the white versus black like she's a white person coming into the black community to take stuff from black people as like an ethnocidal white person historically would do. It looked to me as a, as a white person trying to be part of black culture, whether that's successful or not, or whether it could be successful or not is a completely different issue. But I was like, if white people or a white person wants to exert this much effort to be able to live as a black person forever, I wondered if there was should be like a potential for that to be able to happen where we're not viewing it along like the racial class divisions that like an ethnocidal society makes. Does this make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It you know, does like, make sense. And mm-hmm. so that perspective clearly 
is going to annoy people if we're talking about it through race. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so that was parsed like like ideas like that that just popped in my head where like if I use the language that we're accustomed to using, it's just going to make people mad. Even though I knew my intent wasn't to be harmful and it wasn't actually to say anything like definitive right or wrong. It's just like, can I explore this idea and articulate this exploration to other people so that we could like collaboratively explore it? Yeah. To do that, it hit me over a series of articles that maybe there's a need for like new language so that I can articulate how I'm seeing things so that we could have that collaborative process that language is. And so that's where like ethnocide, the, the, the exploration of what this word could be, which then became ethnocide and clearly the subsequent other words kind of came from that mm -hmm. because, you know, we needed to be able to talk about the culture of our society and if we can talk about the culture, then we can talk, now we can talk about the destruction of culture and how that destruction of culture creates all sorts of notions such as race and whatnot. And now we can have a completely different conversation, which aligns more with how I see stuff. And hopefully that can be productive. Yeah. I also know through like our conversations and maybe you also wrote about this in your book that you have often felt like the English language has been limiting in a lot of different ways too, right? In regards to just like expressing like community. Um, and it comes through with, you know, Western philosophy and Western philosophical thinkers um, prioritizing an individual versus the community. So it kind of sounds like through your writing, like you were able to kind of formulate ethnocide and kind of bring like ethnocide it's not like you founded the word but you discovered it through reading right and you yeah. it just clicked right for you that it's not necessarily you know this fake hierarchy that white people have invented right to keep basically like white people at the top and to just invent races that has no you know biological basis but it was like definitely invented to reinstate like a social and political hierarchy of people right yeah um and reinforce through policy and now it's what a lot of people use that kind of language of racism racist language <laughs> as well to oppress um and so like i'm really curious you know this like how did language that the need or kind of the desire to like create new language, like how did that also come about for you? You know, so where was kind of the, yeah. Yeah. Go so ahead. There's, there, there's a lot of layers to this. Um, so, so this is like a, it's like a sensitive topic, I guess, but like, like I've never, seen things through like the racial linguistic construct like I just haven't that's just not how I've ever seen the world so like I give this example in the my book about when I was a kid and I recognized racism for the first time it, like it, it like it clicked and I had three thoughts and it was like I didn't pick who my parents are I didn't pick where I live and I didn't pick like what I look like. So the idea that someone could judge me based off of any of this is just crazy. 
And if they can judge me off of things that I have nothing to do with, then they can judge me about anything at any time based on nothing. Like there doesn't have to be any facts or like reason for their judgment. So I then don't need to do anything to get these people to like me or really care if they don't like me because like their opinions are nothing. Like, and that's like what I remember thinking in like fourth grade. And I don't know how to think differently than that. But the thing that's really interesting about this is like in my brain, who my parents are and where I'm from showed up before the idea of race. You know what I mean? Like, like, like they're judging me based off of like, like I knew my race is a thing that came from my parents. Therefore, they're like judging me based off of my parents, you know? And like, I live in the South. I didn't pick to live here. So these people are judging me in this way because I live here. Those ideas appeared to me before, like really being worried about whether I am or I'm not black. Like that's just a thing. And so being black is something that I, I've always been something that I am, but it, this racial idea wasn't ever a thing that like defined me in the way that America says that it should. Mm -hmm. And this creates like a weird tension because when you're told that this racial identity should define how you see yourself and how you see everything in the world. When you see racism, you're then going to start trying to find solutions off of these racial concepts. So like if you find out that like white people don't like you because you're black and you want to stay friends with these people, you'll then try to do stuff to like lessen the idea of your own blackness and get closer to the idea of their whiteness. And there's plenty of people that took that strategy and, you know, can't, you know, I didn't make that decision, but like most people came to this realization when they're like in middle school or elementary school. So like how harshly can you judge a kid's logic? You know, like it doesn't yeah. make it, that'd be, that'd be That's really a good rude. point. And yeah. at the same time, there are so many other black friends of mine that they said, uh, I don't, like these white people are crazy. I'm just going to hang out with black people because I'm black and we're black and this is what we do. Since I never did any of that and how I saw things, there wasn't like a really precise language for articulating it to other people. Lots of people just didn't understand me or didn't like me for like my entire life. Like, Like they just couldn't get me. There'd be someone that would like me And then they'd articulate at some point, like their perception of me. And it was just horribly wrong, you know, like, like, like people in high school, I remember this one person in their mind, I was like, I was the black guy that liked white people. And it was like, Mm. no, like, but you hang out with white people. It's like, yeah, I'm in all the honors classes. Like, I'm in the, I live in the suburbs of, of, of Atlanta. This is like one of the epicenters of white flight. Most there's more white people here and all the honors and gifted classes are white people. So yeah, I'm hanging out with a lot of white people. They're in every single one of my classes. 
um, I play soccer. They're like, yeah, why don't you play like basketball or football or something? It's like, I'm 5'10 and like 150 pounds. Like, yeah, makes a lot of sense for me to be a basketball player. Makes a lot of sense for me to be a football player. No, soccer is the sport that makes the most sense and I like it the most. So I'm going to play soccer. And in people's minds, that was like a white sport. And all I'm really doing is doing stuff that I like with no concern as to like what race is supposed to do it. But people couldn't perceive it that way. And so for a very long time, like black people just didn't understand me. And if I had a conversation about being black, I would have a conversation that was like from a cultural perspective. And that would seem to be like an affront to their racial perspective. And for a while, I definitely had a desire to figure out how to say stuff so that my community wouldn't view me as someone that was like potentially detrimental. You know, like I knew that the ideas that I had were things that could be beneficial to my community. I just had to figure out how to say it. Yeah. And that's like, I'm going to be black forever. So like there's an importance to making sure that like I can articulate my thoughts within my community and have it so that people understand it to some regard and like right. the word ethnocide has made that really easy. But that probably took 30 some odd years, I guess, <laughs> of, <laughs> you know, of, you know, of thinking to find a word. But like that's so like, you know, the the, the emphasis, the, the, the impetus, I guess, was trying to figure out how I can articulate how my brain works so that I can communicate to other people especially people that are part of my community because there's like a greater urgency for that. Right. Yeah. I think that's also why, like, I really appreciate the work of SEL just because there's so much that can be lost in translation, right? From like these first draft thoughts or thoughts that are just barely forming or feelings that you may be having as people are talking with you about certain topics like, you know, racism (laughs) or even yeah gender identity right and you're like you know this there's feels like there's something lacking right or like we're not truly connecting you know the like root of the problem to potential solutions right and yeah I, I think that's also why I can really appreciate like the work of SEL that you know in bringing in new language, cultivating new language, right? It also means we can develop better practices for thoughtful, intentional, and positively, you know, impactful, like, work and and behaviors, yeah. And also, like, like since America's ethnocidal, and due to ethnocide, people engage in bad faith quite a bit because if I'm going to do, if I'm going to interact with someone where I'm going to like destroy their culture because I believe that's going to be profitable or beneficial to me in some way, there's no way they will interact with me if like my intentions are known. So like there has to be some sort of bad faith relationship. And I'm saying this because that also means that people will view language as something that's insignificant because the expectation is that people's words won't be backed up 
by their actions because mm-hmm. there's a bad faith foundation. And so mm-hmm. like one of the one of the, the the obstacles with SCL is that it's hard for people to conceptualize that words matter. And then it's hard for them to conceptualize that those words will result in like actions that are like representative of those words. It's it's like wild to think that like that's where we're at but that's really like where we're at as a society for people to understand that like words have a meaning and then since they have meaning that meaning will result in actions and then you'll do things according to the language and then before the language exists there's clearly going to be a philosophy that like precedes it that cultivates it so like i had a philosophy that saw the world through a cultural lens and not a racial one. Yeah. I had like 30, about, you know, 30 years of there being like really no language that I could conceive of for how to articulate that. I then did it. Now I can talk about that. Now it's really easy for people to see how my actions consistently are expression of that philosophy and the language and then they can do it too and this is just like a completely new like way of seeing things for people and like i'll say and i don't want to get like too personal here but a couple years ago <laughs> like you and i had a conversation about something and like you got mad at me because i i like i had a perspective and the thing that's interesting is like i think people expected me to be like mad at Luna or something because she was mad at me and I was like no 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 like no one is here by like force if she has a perspective she can have it and if she wants to talk to me she can talk to me any day of the week because my philosophy is this is this like my language the actions they continue this is the philosophy and one day we did have a conversation and all I say is like All I can do is appreciate the time that you exerted to help us out. No one made you do it. And if you wanted to have a conversation about something and maybe I made a mistake, then we can address that because the philosophy is trying to do something that's good, nurturing, and sustainable. And that means that like nobody's perfect, can make a mistake. We're doing all this in good faith. And I think that was also like, to a certain extent, like a clarification that like, Yo, he, this philosophy actually, it's what he says it is. Like, he may have done something stupid, and he just said, all right, that's, you're right. Let's, I'll fix it, and then we'll just keep on going, and if you want to participate, we'll just keep on doing it. And we have ever since. And, like, that's what it looks like, but I don't think people are accustomed to things looking like that, you know? Right, yeah, because, I mean, it's a little bit, the way that you're describing it is a little bit more fluid, right? And people are definitely more rigid <laughs> in yeah. terms of like how they may perceive such a situation, you know, when such emotions are involved. But that fluidity comes from like existence itself, you know, like mm-hmm. there, there's a, a key consistency that has to get adopted, adapted based on just how the world may swing any given day you know it's like if i have the language that i like to be warm and cozy when i go outside 
that doesn't mean I wear the same clothes every day. Mm-hmm. You know, like if the weather is this way, I'm going to wear something completely different than what I'll wear the next day if the weather changes. But I'm still doing the same thing every single time. Like yeah. when we think of consistency, people like to think that you wear the same clothes every single second of every day. No, that's crazy because the world changes. The environment around you changes. As you do something different, it should be you should be able to see that you're still doing the same philosophy the whole time, just right. adapting it to the environment. And that's what we're trying to do. Too often people have an idea of consistency that's completely devoid of reality. And then they just kind of get baffled. Or change. Yeah. 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 I feel like a lot of people associate consistency with sameness. <laughs> and yeah. consistency requires change, that fluidity, um, to be able to adapt because nothing nothing stays the same. You know, there's going to be minor bumps, roads, and even sometimes major changes that people have to make. But being open to that kind of change, I think, is also really important to keep in mind with consistency. And like, and so this goes, this connects back to language, because if I have a philosophy that is based around existence, instead of a philosophy that's based around like essence, which are just ideas that don't really have to have like an attachment to existence or reality, I'll cultivate language that articulates my relationship with existence. Yeah. If I have a philosophy based on essence, I'll cultivate language about that relationship to essence. And so like when we pe- like if the if we have this essence this idea of like a detached from reality, then we're going to come up with notions of consistency that don't even factor in the natural changes of life. You know? Right. So then their consistency their their ideas of consistency that like nobody can actually accomplish everyone's going to be a disappointment or a failure just because they're living. That will make people sad. That'll make people, and then people yeah. will, will struggle to be able to articulate anything because they won't even have the words to describe reality. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, this is a mass, like this is like a massive change. And so if we're talking about like race, like, Race in America is an idea that has no connection to reality. And it's like an idea that's like fixed. Like the idea that you'd be like (laughs) black or white, these fixed like constructs forever. That's nuts. Like like, uh, when I first started doing my work and I would talk to people about race versus culture and like racial division... I'd I'd say like here's an example of like how these ideas of black and white are like crazy, but also just like inherently like oppressive and divisive is like the South doesn't have a bunch of mixed race people. Like it's not a society that's predominantly mixed race, but we know that it's been basically black and white for hundreds of years. And a lot of these states are 50-50 black and white. Do you think that it's natural that that many black and white people could be in the same space for hundreds of years and just never mix? 
Or, I mean, you know, they marry, they elope, have kids, and they move up north because it's more acceptable culturally north, you know. So they migrate physically to where it's more acceptable um, and they feel like the culture is more accepting, right? Because why would you want to raise your kid in that kind of environment? (laughs) Right, right. because it's more attached to reality. Like in the South, they'll articulate, they'll think that it's just perfectly natural, that there isn't a big segment of mixed race people. No, that's not natural at all. Like we know if we just right. put pe- people of different races in the same place for for like 30 years, 20 years, you're going to get a lot of mixing. The idea that it wouldn't happen in a place for hundreds of years, like the only way that can happen is by like intentional, systematic, systemic division mm-hmm. at like every aspect of life. It's not natural. But we have, like, the language we have has inverted reality to make something that clearly is not natural, not sustainable. People perceive to just be, like, how things organically happen. Yeah. We're in the upside down. So now you have to have language (laughs) that, like, articulates that the upside down isn't right side up. And that that's where, like language comes in that's why you can start talking about culture and you know an ethnocide and then you break free from these like racial constructs and so like the the emphasis on language for me has really been just like a a prolonged journey of just trying to articulate what was in my head to other people and for some reason that i can't explain what's in my head doesn't seem to be what's in a lot of other people's heads and so there's like a, like a, a greater, there's like a significance to me being articulated out into the world because it's, it, it, it can be beneficial to other people because they haven't had those thoughts. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we're using this like system that like people of color didn't create, <laughs> right? Like white men created a, a racial a system to racially categorize people based on how they looked, right? And maybe also tied to some like ancestral lineage, right? Um, I'm thinking specifically in regards to a lot of black folks and indigenous people, right? Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because like we have, instead of like countering that with like, um, you know, different discourse, different language to describe the impact of this like false system that was created. We took their system <laughs> to kind of talk about, you know, like the the systemic like diseases that plague us, right? And like keep keep certain people at the bottom, like want to oppress us. So it, it, this is a really tricky like catch 22 it's this and this is very like sensitive linguistically to talk about i think my language like allows this but like what we're talking about is due to ethnocide the language and concepts that african people had before the transatlantic slave trade a lot of that's gone and the language that they were forced to adopt was a language that was all built around saying that you weren't a person. And so the the journey is going to be one where like that language that you says you aren't a person, you then find a way to use that language to say you are a person. 
but that's not that can't be like the final step the the next step has to be that you liberate yourself from like the restrictions of this language as much as possible and that can be and a great way to do that is by using concepts from other societies that are completely like different that can allow for like a paradigm shift and for the african-american community since we're like you know and so this word also gets like quite sensitive we're like the united states was clearly structured so that it indigenous people were not like an active part of the united states you know mm -hmm. but black people were an active part of the united states so like the the the, the you know, that, that was, it was a, there were a, an active financial component of the United States. So what this means is that the people who are going to be able to talk about like the oppression that exists within America are also the people who are shorn of the language outside of America that can better like articulate the types of oppression within it. You know what I mean? And so so then people from other countries immigrate to the United States and they fully believe the positive narrative about all of the stuff. And then they're here long enough and then the bad things start happening to them. There's like a lot of, there's attacks on Asian people. There's attacks on, you know, Jewish Americans and Latinos and all sorts of stuff. And people are like, I can't believe this happened. When they're looking for the voice to articulate it, that voice is often going to be from the black community, but they don't have the external cultural reference to talk about like the other way to live or the other way to see stuff. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So like, it's this, it's this really, it's this profound problem where like the liberating language there's an onus that it comes from the black community first. And we've done that quite a bit where, you know, civil rights movement, reconstruction, all that kind of stuff. But that liberating language has to evolve more and more and more where like it transcends the linguistic norm of our society. And then we start articulating that. And like, I think that's right. a leap that like we haven't, made yet but i think it's a leap that we can make and the the linguistic concepts that people from other american immigrant communities have i think are ones that can be like adopted and made in like a a, a diverse multicultural way to impact a lot of different communities of color so like Los muertos is a great example for that like that's that's a, an idea, a practice, a language that has no connection to American society. But if we use it in America, it can create like an opportunity for liberation that we just were incapable of imagining or articulating before we saw a foreign community bring it to us. And, you know, you know, I think Asian communities have plenty of ideas like that too. And, you know, clearly African immigrant communities do too, but like, that's, that's the step. And, uh, I, I don't think 
we've gotten there yet, but I hope to be able to facilitate that philosophically and linguistically. Yeah. And I mean, that's a great point because, I mean, you know, I'm teaching a course on Asian American Pacific Islanders culture and history. And I mean, my students aren't Asian, but they have voice concern that basically this identity of Asian American Pacific Islander, like wasn't ours that we formulated in the first place, right? A lot of Pacific Islanders don't necessarily identify as Pacific Islanders. They identify as their specific ethnic group. (laughs) And also, I mean, yeah, that the term itself like hasn't really evolved since the 1960s. And I mean, for a lot of our racial and ethnic groups, like it's not like we we define that. The U.S. Census basically has categorized us into these like categories of like you know a false racial identity <laughs> yeah um sometimes you know even based on continent right like we stem from the continent of asia and the pacific islands so therefore like our racial category is tied to that but then you know you have that the ethnic label of like hispanic latinx and it's like okay i don't even know where that is on the map <laughs> Yeah. And that's definitely a made-up identity that the U.S. Census made up, right? And so, yeah, it's it's all made up. And like the thing that's really yeah troubling, it's the whole thing's troubling. But like the 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 modern day dilemma is like America as like a, a colonized, you know, white led society for the most part has viewed the world through like a white lens and that lens engaged in ethnocide, which was like a decultured way of seeing the world. And they gave people like these aesthetic racial classifications. And the Mm -hmm. whole thing was based around just like these aesthetic classifications, no connection to anything that people do. Just, I see you, you're this. And so based on how what I, perceive yeah exactly like based on like how a white person perceives you that's your classification and that's it and so what ends up happening is we're becoming more and more aware of how problematic that is but we still don't know how to see or articulate the world in another way so even though we'll know that like asia is really diverse and that you know that continent is way bigger than europe pacific islander like that's a lot of territory too you know so we will know that these people have these different cultures and ethnicities and whatnot but we don't know how to articulate that in a way that fits within the american framework so what we then are more inclined to do is just like assign these people to like an aesthetic racial classification that we'll believe is adequate because if right. it's inadequate, then that would also mean that like the identity that's white would be inadequate. Potentially the identity that's black would be inadequate. Like it has to be adequate because if it's not, then how we've seen the whole world or, we, you know, how white crumbles, people have seen the whole kinda. world is yeah. just like, it just crumbles. And mm-hmm. like, there's a, there's a, a lot of tension there because people come here because they've been told that seeing the world that way is a good way to see it. So, there's like a lot of resistance on not seeing it through that lens, even though we're starting to realize how problematic it is. But then there's the next step where like, if you know it's problematic, 
and you don't want to say this word or these words, well, then what are the words that you do say? And if you don't know what those words are, you can't really say anything. And so like SCL, I hope helps us start traversing that terrain because you have to start making the words or unearthing neglected forgotten words like ethnocide or ethnogenesis or you make a new word like fricano or you make a new word like instead of saying surreal you say surreal so that people understand that like you know it's a nightmare and not a dream reality you know stuff like that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like that's so like uh, this journey for language uh in a in a micro sense was just me trying to figure out how to articulate how I saw the world to other people. And then as you can communicate with more and more people, then naturally it's going to like, it's just going to organically grow because now you can have conversations and that's just like, that's kind of what life is about. Yeah. Conversations. I think that also like really welcome the fluidity and the change of reality. Right. And that really also, I don't know, kind of phase in, a more accurate depiction of our reality versus kind of what um, the so-called like founding fathers manifested for everybody in this country. Like just the fact that you like have to make that clarification is wild because like where you have like in our society, you have to remind people that like the conversations we have are conversations that are based around reality and wanting to like survive and live mm-hmm. together and exist. And they're not conversations that are just based around the delusions of people whose delusions also say that they're the best or we're the best. And those delusions are more important than existence itself, which goes to like that Cartesian way of seeing the world where essence is more important than existence. Like, how can you have conversations built upon delusions? But, like, we've tried for a really long time in this country to do that. Yeah. And now when we're trying not to, we have to remind people, oh, we're not just, like, talking about delusional stuff right now. We're actually talking about reality. Oh, that's interesting. Let me try that. Like, what's... Yeah. <laughs> that's what <wild. laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And so... So, yeah, that... So then to circle back, like my perspective was trying to articulate reality which was really hard to figure out how to say and if i tried to say it using like our delusional discourse no one understood it they get really annoyed with me and uh but i knew my reality was i didn't like have like a negative perspective of my own people or something you know yeah yeah words matter (laughs) yeah so so that's that all right yeah, I think right. that's a good, good natural ending to this episode. Then, it's perfect. Very- yeah, thanks, and uh, yeah, come back next time, uh, listeners, and you can you know get all of our stuff on social media and and our our Substack newsletter and everything like that. And there you go. All right, later. <laughs>